I am thrilled to today's guest, Jeffrey Tubin. It's kind of a household name. Uh, he's probably one of the great chroniclers of the great legal criminal happenings of our time. Whether he's written, is it 10 or 11 books? I know this nine. that we're going to talk about. Nine. nine. Okay. <laughs> just nine. I'm trying to push you forward. Um, he's written books that have turned into TV series, everything from Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton to uh, Patty Hearst to O.J. Simpson. His newest book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism, is a must-read. He's an Emmy winner. Uh, he spent 27 years at The New Yorker, a ton of years at CNN. Uh, brilliant legal mind, brilliant legal analyst. Thanks for being here, sir. Donnie, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Great. You know, th this book, uh, this, I'll just read the scariest quote from the book, uh, that consequently McVeigh's story is not just a glimpse of the past, but also a warning about the future. And I guess that kind of sums up the book. Is that fair to say? It is. Um, you know, I covered uh, the McVeigh and Nichols trials back in 1997. People may remember they were moved to Denver. And, you know, the story was sort of in the back of my mind for a long time. And then in October of 2020, you may remember that's when um, the FBI arrested a bunch of people who were trying to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan. Yes. And yes that they were affiliated with the Michigan militia. And Terry Nichols, who was McVeigh's co-defendant, was from Michigan and affiliated with the Michigan militia. And I said to myself, you know, I, I know these people. Then the um, uh, January 6th happened a few weeks later, and I decided to jump back into the subject, in part because I, I just thought the story of how the Oklahoma City bombing happened was so interesting. But just as importantly, I thought that the the views and the mindset and the politics of McVeigh and Nichols had carried forward um, more than 20 years later. You, you talk in the book, it's interesting, this was pre-internet and how yet these groups and these 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 minefields kind of were, were, were percolating and somehow would find each other. It's not as easy as today where you all kind of, they all have this kind of central nervous system, if you will. D Donnie, this was really one of the big revelations to me, you know, that, that uh, McVeigh based his action on this horrible novel called The Turner Diaries. And, and what happened in The Turner Diaries was um, Earl, um, or Earl Turner um, uh, sets off a bomb outside the FBI building in, uh, in Washington and that, that leads to a counter-revolution against an evil federal government. And McVeigh wanted to do the same thing. And he said to his lawyers later, you know, I know there is an army out there of people like me, but I just never found them. And what, what, what's different about today is that McVeigh didn't have a way to find them. He went to gun shows. He was just not a uh, charismatic person. He couldn't recruit followers. But starting with the uh, attempt to kidnap Governor Whitmer, which was plotted on Facebook uh, private chats, and all the the, the right-wing violence we've seen subsequently, whether it's uh, shooting up the Walmart in El Paso or the grocery store in Buffalo or the synagogue in Pittsburgh, it's all based on the internet. McVeigh didn't have the internet, and that's the big difference uh, between him and his successors. So let's talk about the birth of Timothy Tim McVeigh, not literally, but in other words, what, talk about how a guy ends up blowing up, killing 160 people, children, 
uh, what give the quick storyline of his life and and but once again, you talk about this. There's no such thing as this lone wolf theory, and it, it, it's a little different. But talk about just this guy, this one story. I, I mean, it's 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 I think a, a fascinating story. His, he he grew up outside Buffalo in a town called Lockport, and his father worked for thirty years in the GM plant there. His grandfather worked for 30 years in the GM plant there. That plant was shrinking almost to nothing by the time McVeigh came along. The industrial economy of Buffalo was shrinking. So the economic opportunities that were available to his uh, father and grandfather weren't available to him. Um, He um, was not a dumb kid. He was not a poor kid. Um, You know, he grew up in a solidly middle class home and uh, he joined the army. Um, he, um, you know, one of the great questions about a lot, a lot of people involved in the, in the, in the, um, uh, attack on the Capitol were, uh, veterans. And the question is, did the army radicalize these people or did they join the army because they thought they could, um, you know, express their political views there? I think it was a combination with McVeigh. He was a very successful soldier in in the first Gulf War. He came back and tried out to be a Green Beret, Special Forces. He failed um, in the um, it, it, to to qualify the Green Berets, and in the late that made it the late eighties, and he was just sort of lost at that point. This actually that was nineteen ninety one. He returns to Buffalo and gets radicalized. He gets radicalized in part. Wait, stop! Stop right! Stop right there. Sure. Because that's a big sentence. He returns sure. to Buffalo and gets radicalized. Talk about that process. What exactly happened? Well, you know, the the one of the things I learned, and we can talk about this, is is I got access to all of the records of the defense. Uh, Stephen Jones, uh, McVeigh's lead lawyer, donated 635 boxes of material to the Briscoe Center at the University of Texas. So I got access to a tremendous amount of background material about McVeigh. And I learned things that people didn't know. For example, McVeigh was an obsessive listener to Rush Limbaugh. He bought into a lot of uh, Limbaugh's conspiracy theories. And this was the period in the early Clinton administration when Limbaugh was at his height uh, of influence. You know, he thought that Vince Foster was uh, the, the, the White House aide was killed. You know, and and what what really turned McVeigh uh, into a, a radical was the attack on what uh, was the failed FBI Waco, raid Waco, at right, Waco, right, April nineteenth, right. nineteen ninety three. All of that, um, including um, listening to shortwave radio, a guy named William Cooper, another very important influence. It 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 fed it fed McVeigh's fury, uh, and he became. Uh, he was already a big racist, a big anti-Semite, but he turned his fury against the federal government. That's the story of the Turner Diaries, and that's what he decided to do, attack the government just the way Earl Turner did in the hopes of inspiring a broader rebellion. And why Oklahoma City? Why the federal building? Why, what, 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 you know, you know, this is this is one of the weird things. You know, McVeigh um, was uh, a, a scrupulous planner in many respects. I mean, pulling this bomb together was an incredible organizational feat. Evil, but in in a weird way, um, showed a, a, a lot of skill. 
He chose Oklahoma City in an almost haphazard way. He had no connections to Oklahoma City. He wanted to bomb a federal building. He looked in Dallas. He looked in Little Rock. He looked in Phoenix. And what he found was he could park closest to the building in Oklahoma City. And if you remember, the Murrah building um, had a, you know, it's a black glass building and it had a little indented parking area in front. This was a time before there was as much security around federal buildings as there is today. And he chose Oklahoma City because um, he thought he could park close to the building and cause the most amount of destruction. Would you say that that event was, it certainly wasn't, I'm going to say the birth of right-wing extremism and, and, and domestic violence, but the kind of uh, launch pad moment for what is today's right-wing extremism? Uh, in a short answer, yes, I, I, I do. I mean, you're right that, that McVeigh wasn't the first right-wing white ring extremist, but uh, one of the things I do in the epilogue to the book is, tr- is trace the right-wing extremism that has taken place since 1995. And it was shocking to me how much there has been, uh, including immediately after the Oklahoma City bombing. You would think that after 1995, after such a horror, 168 people killed, including 19 children, that that would turn people off. But in fact, there was there were attempts, fortunately, most thwarted, uh, at, at copycats, but it really continued. And, and there was a sort of ebb and flow when Clinton, when Democrats were president, when, when Republicans were president, especially George W. Bush, um, the, the amount of right-wing, ter- right-wing extremism went down, the violence went down. But when uh, Clinton was president and when Obama was president, and now when Biden is president, it's gone back. It's gone back up, and there are certain themes that that continue. Um, the incredible obsession with gun rights. McVeigh was uh, consumed with fear that um, the guns were going to be taken away from him. You know, everybody knows that the the Waco was a big motivating factor, but just as important to McVeigh was September thirteenth, nineteen ninety four when Bill Clinton passed the assault weapons ban. That obsession with gun rights is something that has motivated the folks on January 6th and many others along the way. Uh, A belief in violence to achieve political ends. And interestingly, this was a surprise to me, an obsession with the founding fathers. The idea that, well, the founding fathers rebelled against the tyranny of the British and we are doing the same thing against an evil federal government. You see that uh, with McVeigh, who had the Declaration of Independence mem- uh, memorized, but also in um, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene and lots of the people on January 6th, whether they were waving the Gadsden flag, the yellow flag, don't tread on me, also a revolutionary symbol. That claimed identification with the revolutionary generation is something that McVeigh's heirs share with them. Yeah, you're right. Neither did McVeigh's movement die in the wreckage of the, of the Murat building. His brand of right-wing extremism lives on, even thrives to this day. Are we, we're at a scarier moment in time than that point in time, for all the obvious reasons, starting with the internet, and we see what happens. Be a prognosticator for a second. How, and obviously we've heard every FBI uh, 
chiefs say domestic terrorism is our biggest uh, threat today. It's it's not Islamic terrorism. How frightened should we be when we hear when we we, they, we find out that as you said they 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 squash the the Gretchen Whitmer uh, kidnapping attempt. We see how close January six came to turning into a bloody. It was bloody in certain ways, but if not by the work of a few brave capital policemen to kind of detour people away, we could have ended up with executions in there. Take me through the pessimistic Jeffrey Tubin. Okay, Donnie, here's here's where we're headed, and this really worries the fuck out of me. Well, what what's um, you know the 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 pervasiveness of these beliefs is is really is really shocking to me. I had not realized uh, how how much of this anger uh, is out there, and um, what you have now is a situation where guns are are at the center of the, of the anger, and uh, you know I I think um, I'll. The right wing extremism that manifests itself today um, tends to come in mass shootings as, a, as opposed to bombs, which is not to say that someone couldn't buy a lot of fertilizer the way McVeigh and Nichols did and do another bomb. But if you look at the recent the, the recent uh, spate of of mass shootings, um, whether, as I said, in Buffalo, um, the, the shooting up of the uh, FBI office in Cincinnati, an effort in, in Knoxville. Uh, Uvalde, it's all with the AR-15 assault weapons. And the assault weapons are easy to get in this country. And we have now a political party, the Republican Party, that um, is using its power to make these guns easier and easier uh, to get. Uh, at a time when, if you look at polls, the broader country oh, wants wants can, people I, I, to stop. It, it, def, it defies political logic. You've got eighty percent of the almost ninety percent who want universal background checks. You've got seventy five percent that want red flag laws. You've got sixty percent that want assault ban assault ban weapons. But but, yet, it, but it, it doesn't defies political gravity. Well, it does. It doesn't. It doesn't. But we don't have national referenda on 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 gun on gun laws. We have state legislatures that are heavily gerrymandered so that the Republicans have institutionalized their control in North Carolina, in Ohio, in Florida, so that even though they don't, the, the, the broader public doesn't support um, expanding uh, the right to get assault weapons, the, the, the Republicans who control these states and the Republicans in Congress have to answer to heavily Republican districts. And those Republican districts include people who want gun rights expanded. And that's why um, you, you have this, this disconnect. As you point out, most of the country thinks this is insane, but the, but the politicians who answer to their voters, their voters, carefully chosen by them, want assault weapons. Coming off of the week last week with Tucker Carlson was, thank God, fired. Um, you're somebody who spent a lot of time in the media. Uh, you know a lot of these characters, and they are characters. Do you believe in, and somebody like Tucker, I'm not blaming a Tucker Carlson on the on the carnage that happens in the world, but he's certainly an agitator of hate. I think I don't think you can debate that. I, do you believe these characters in the media 
that spin these stories, do you believe they believe them or that they become performance artists and they're playing to their audience? Donnie, you know, I, I have struggled with that question. You know, it, uh, Tucker and I overlapped a little at uh, CNN, you know. In, People forget he was at MSNBC and CNN. <laughs> and PBS. Know? So the, tri- the trifecta. <laughs> no, right, it, right. well, it also inclu- he had a show on PBS for a while too. So oh, no, yeah, the, he, he's right. been at the Stations of the Cross in, in our media. Um, and, and I knew him and, and you know, I, I, he seemed like a decent enough guy. We used to talk about freelance writing magazine. We were both magazine writers and we talked about like magazine stories that we thought were great. And, and uh, I remember when he worked for Tina Brown, who edited Talk Magazine after she was at The New Yorker, which, you know, so we both worked for Tina and, and, and how much we liked working for Tina. He seemed like, you know, he's conservative, but lots of conservative people out there who, you know, are not crazy. And then I see him on the air. And the thing that I don't think gets enough attention about Tucker, you know, everybody talks about the racism, which should be talked about. Everybody talks about the anti-immigration stuff. But what he did and what Fox did about vaccines alone, encouraging their viewers not to get vaccinated and cost hundreds of thousands of lives. They they, they kill. There's blood on their people. hands. There's blood on their hands. There's blood, blood on their hands. On, no and and that to me. I don't believe that anyone as smart as Tucker Carlson could actually believe uh, the bullshit he was peddling about vaccines. And, and you know, as, as is widely known, Fox had vaccine requirements to get in their office buildings. I mean, they, they were not uh, putting their own lives at risk, but they they used the the the, you know, this this ratings tool of of angry people who didn't want to get vaccinated and and that kind of poison was was shocking to me. Even someone who I think is fairly cynical about the news media. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let's shift gears for a second. You're you're the chronicler of the trials of our times and the uh, the sensational trials of our times. And we're we're heading into the first of our president, our ex president. Uh, there'll probably be. I'd love your thoughts on where you see this trial going, and then kind of give me handicap power rankings and the other trials. How do you see, how do you see uh, Georgia playing out? How do you see Georgia, January 6th playing out? How do you see the obstruction of justice uh, documents playing out? Obviously you don't have a silver ball, but nobody would have a better gut feeling than you. Right. Um, th- this, this is, you know, the, the, the mega political question of, of our, of our day, because we are in completely unprecedented a situation here where the very likely nominee of one political party is, is, already under indictment and likely to be indicted again. And no one knows how that can play out both politically and also as a legal matter. I mean, you know, these cases are going to proceed while he's on the campaign trail. And and is he going to sit in court? Is he going to show up? What are the judges going to do? I mean, it, it, we, anyone who tells you they know for sure is blowing smoke. Um, I, I, to be honest, I'm not terribly impressed by the New York case. I actually thought the yeah. first New York investigation, the one about misstating the value of his yes. office buildings, was a more compelling criminal case. You go that you go to jail for that. That that is a that is a serious. I mean, I I can name guys I know that went to jail for that. You know? And and um, it, it's an easy crime uh, to understand. Yeah. Whatever else you think about Michael uh, Michael Cohn's, you know, paying off. Uh, Stormy Daniels, 
it does not necessarily seem like Donald Trump's intent was to create false business records. That wasn't what was going yeah. on. Now, it, it, it may be that he also did that. Uh, and that and that is that is a crime. But I, I just don't think that is uh, an especially compelling crime. And I think the very slow pace of the uh, of, of that case. Remember, the motions in that case aren't even to be filed until December. I, I think that case will likely fade to the background as Georgia and the federal cases uh, come uh, come to the fore. It, it seems almost a certainty that the Georgia case will will be indicted this summer, and and I think that is a much more both legally significant case and politically significant case because what the pres what then President Trump did, if if it can be proved, was a crime against democracy, something that was, you know, deeply sinister in a country where the the, the candidate with the most votes is supposed to win. I mean, it's not just the infamous phone call to the Secretary of State, Brad Raffelsberger, where he says, you know, find me the 12,000 yeah. votes. I mean, it's, that, it's, to, to a novice, that seems that seems as a smoke, the ultimate smoking. Well, and, and, mean, and you know, the, you, the elections are supposed to be about finding the correct result, not the 12,000 votes you need you you need to to win. You know, one of the one of the problems with the whole the experience of covering Trump is that there were so many scandals so quickly and, and they, yeah. they followed on top of each other. We became a nerd to them. And that phone you know, call, yeah. which we've heard and, and discussed so many times, is it's terrible. It is terrible. And it is worth remembering uh, how terrible it is. Now, in the federal s- system, um, you have essentially two investigations, both under the control of Jack Smith. You have the January 6th investigation. You know, did, the, did Trump uh, instigate, uh, incite the attack a, a tougher on the Capitol. It's a tougher case because the most re- the most severe, but the tough, but the toughest case. And and, and you know th- that's a case again based on what's public. I think I think prosecutors know a lot more than than we do at this yeah. point. But based on what's public, there are I think real First Amendment problems with that case because politicians say we have to fight for X in practically every speech. You know, every politician says we have to fight, fight, fight. And, you know, the fact that uh, Trump said to the the rally on the ellipse, we have to fight for our democracy to 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 say that was a crime because a lot of those people then went on to the Capitol. I think that's that's a tough case. Tough sell. Now, the obstruction, uh, the obstruction case is is the real slam dunk, according to most legal minds. Well, the 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 Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Mar-a-Lago papers case. Again, there's a lot that's not known about what went on, um, exactly how those papers were transferred to Mar-a-Lago, and even more importantly, what happened at Mar-a-Lago when um, the the subpoena came and said, give the papers back. Because, you know, I think as often the case, it's going to be the lesser known figures who turn out to be the most important witness. What did Trump say to the people at Mar-a-Lago about turning over those documents? If he said to them, don't turn them over, I don't care what the subpoena says, that's devastating evidence. And that case is, in many respects, the most straightforward 
it doesn't involve, you know, a lot of first, you know, major First Amendment issues. It doesn't involve uh, thousands of witnesses. So, you know, I, I think the Mar-a-Lago case is more likely to be indicted than the January 6th case. But, you know, I, the, the federal government does a good job of keeping that investigation secret. And so I don't know uh, how that's going to go in the way that I'm pretty sure the Georgia case is going to proceed. I, w- I want to weave back and weave together. We talk about Trump, and we obviously we're talking about the book with Timothy McVeigh. Draw the dotted line between those two characters. Well, uh, or is there uh, one? I, I don't. Well, want to say uh, there, there absolutely is. There, there absolutely is. Yeah. It's 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 a dotted line. Now, um, you know, as as I, I said earlier, you know, if you look at the priorities, if you look at what McVeigh was most angry about. It is precisely what the people in Jan- January 6th were most angry about. Sure. sure. Guns, you know, the, the, the perceived threat to gun rights, the belief in violence as a, um, as a legitimate political tool, and this obsession with the founding fathers. Those first two things, the gun rights and, and um, the belief in violence, is something that Trump exploited throughout his brief but very successful political career. If you listen to how uh, um, Trump endorsed candidates, he would always say, you know, strong on gun rights, that he recognized how his movement was really dominated by gun rights and to a lesser extent immigration, something that McVeigh also cared about. But, but also the issue of violence. You know, it, it is no coincidence that Trump, you know, at his rallies in 2016 would tell people to beat the hell out of Beat him up. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. you know when, when, when he said to cops, uh, you know, you don't have to cover, cover the suspects' heads when you're putting them into cars. You can let them hit their heads yeah. on, the, on, on, yeah. the, on, on the tops of cars. You know, this, this had an impact. I mean, the, presidents hadn't talked that way before. Presidential candidates hadn't talked that way before. George Bush never talked about the use of political violence in, um, you know, in, in in a domestic setting. I mean, it was never, it was not, and, and no, it wasn't that, ever, it wasn't, it wasn't in a It, it was culture. just wasn't, it, it wasn't, I mean, yeah. I don't know what's in George Bush's head, but I would be, it would never occur to him, much less his yeah. father, uh, to say that. Trump's use of violence and the threat of violence as a as a political tool is something that comes right out of um, the the McVeigh playbook, and and I think you can draw it comes out of and it comes out of the fascist the fascist playbook, and and I you know I was one of the first ones calling him a fascist on the air, making uh, parallels to early Nazi Germany. I got in a lot of trouble for it, frankly, and I, I think people have kind of realized that there is a real real line there. Hey, I really appreciate your time, Mr. Dubin. The book is, Dubin, Ms. Dubin, the book is uh, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. The man is Jeffrey Tubin, a scholar of our times. And I soon, I, by the time this this breaks, we're, we're actually taping it the day the book drops. It will be a bestseller, so I'm saying best-selling book. <laughs> I appreciate your time, my friend. From your lips, Donnie, to the buyer's ears. Anyway, thanks. To Amazon's ears. To Amazon's indeed. Thanks, Donnie. Great to talk to you.